You're listening to the Stronger Stride podcast with your hosts, Lydia Mackay and Sophie Lane. Welcome, Stronger Stride listeners. You're here in the hood with Sophie Lane and Lydia Good day. Good day. Bonjour. How are you? Yes. Speaking Hola. of bonjour and good day, in fact, we are going global. Did you know? Well, I'm not sure about that, so are we? <laughs> we have got listeners all over. We've got obviously mostly Australia, but also the US, the UK, Malawi. Not sure that. Oh, wow. Yeah, we might do a world tour. Malawi is in Africa. Oh, there you go. Hong Kong, Belgium, Spain, New Zealand, Malaysia, Brazil, Turkey, and India. So, oh my goodness. You can buy it for a world tour tickets getting quick because <laughs> wow we're gonna go traveling that's exciting yeah. not yet though obviously um something else really exciting is that not only are we international which i did not know but this is our 10th episode 10 episodes <laughs> yeah <laughs> double digits like that is that is a massive milestone so 10 down i don't know how many to go hopefully a fair few yeah well thank you if you've listened from number one or if you've maybe you've only just started but this might be your 10th episode that you're listening to anyway or it could be your first episode so if it's your first one yeah there's so many gosh it's gonna take you (laughs) take you forever but um yeah thanks for being here hopefully you'll learn something hopefully you'll get some get some uh pearls of wisdom from our wonderful guests which we have yeah we've had some good ones and today i mean we do say it every time but uh, we just have some really good <laughs> guests but like this one's just really good like they're all really good but this oh, is really good well but before yeah before sorry. we talk about our guest yeah. Yeah. i want you to tell me about your week Soph. i want you to tell me what's been happening what's new and um how's your running been going great question and thought you'd never ask um, yeah i bet you didn't expect that one no, <laughs> um so i did a couple of weeks ago because we haven't chatted since maybe two two and a half weeks ago i did the wooders not a race uh, just just to clarify we have chatted but, but not, not on the, the podcast no. yeah true podcast. yeah not for all our we fans yeah <laughs> anyway, um i did the wooders not a race Oh my goodness, I forgot about that. Yeah, See, that feels good. like so long ago. That's how long it's been. Oh my goodness. Um, so wow. 20K, a 40K, and a 60K option. Myself and our training buddy Sue did the 40K. And yeah. it was so fun. It felt like a real event. We had bibs like with our numbers on. You had to like pin it on. Like, oh. It feels like so long since we've done that. I mean, sorry, we did do that 10K race. But apart from that, no big Oh, I forgot about no that. Big, you know, longer mm. events. Um, yeah so it was so exciting. 10k doesn't count yeah. does it yeah, 10k so um, <laughs> yeah, eight stations on the way and just like it was good vibes it was just so nice oh. um and it was a good run we felt both of us felt really good for maybe the first 15ks and then <laughs> it started to get really hard and we went up to heaton's lookout and it was just oh it was like a proper hill like a oh okay right felt like i felt like i was gonna fall backwards it was that steep. Wow. Um, gosh. So that was good. And like nice views at the top, but I, I don't know if it was worth it. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> this You've got to go. Yeah. Everyone listening who's run up Heaton's Gap from the servo, 
up those stairs and then all the way to the top. It's really tough. So good training. Yeah, right. UTA. Coming back down was so much fun. I love downhill. So that was oh, the best. Yeah, um, you're good at downhills. Yeah, it was really good. And then ran into Dave Burns, my old coach. At oh. The, um, so that was really nice to see him. And then, yeah, we kept going. We're feeling good. Sue had a bit of a fall. <laughs> she, oh, actually. Yeah. We were just <gasps> on like the smoothest well, it, everywhere else was smooth on the surface, but there was just this little thing sticking out of the ground, like a <laughs> looked like the bottom of a pole or something. I'm not sure. It was on the road section, like the oh wow, you'd you fall. Anyway, that was fun. She was okay, and then um, just the last sort of, I guess ten k's was a bit of a struggle. We were both just kind of over it by that point, and just and on my because I didn't have my watch, I was recording on my phone. On oh and no, just, it wasn't accurate, obviously so. I thought in my head it's 40 Ks and I was just counting down. I just kept checking <gasps> the distance and then oh. got close to 40 Ks and I was like, we're not there yet. And then this lady ran past, like flew past. I don't know where she, like how she had that much energy, flew past and said, Oh, don't worry. Less than two Ks to go. And I was thinking, oh, she's probably exaggerating that. It's probably more than two Ks. You know, I need to say, but less, I was like, I can't do less than 200 meters. Like that's way too much. So mentally, <laughs> it was just a long. Run. Those last two Ks probably just they took forever. Um, wow! But it was really good. I I did overall. I did enjoy it. It was just that last bit that kind of made it feel worse than the rest of it was. But focusing on the majority <laughs> was really good. So that was great. Um, and then yeah, just some other shorter runs since then. Um, nothing really to report. Kind of still struggling with the Achilles, and then I've had this weird hamstring thing. Um, so I think both of us are in a bit of a similar boat where we're not wanting to push too much. Mm. not that long to go um but kind of that weird like you kind of feel guilty for not doing anything you feel a bit lazy you kind of there's this really weird mind game going on not wanting to mm. do too much to hurt yourself but yeah feeling like you should be um so it's, it's a tough time i know a lot of people struggle mentally with tapering as well like it's really, yeah it's hard when you've been doing all this serious training and then you just suddenly really reduce what you've been doing and you kind of don't know what to do with yourself. You feel like, oh, have you done enough? You start to doubt yourself. So if anyone out there is feeling like that, just know you have put the work in. Mm. Whatever you've done is enough and it has to be enough because there's nothing you can do about it now. Um, so mm. just get out there and just do what you can and enjoy yourself. That's my oh. uh, of wisdom for the day. That was really good advice. And I feel like I need that also because I agree. I find tapering and I've had this conversation with so many people lately and just in general, it's so hard when you're used to doing something so much to then not doing it hardly at all. And like everyone has different reasons why they run or exercise in general. And I think probably for everyone, even if they don't consider it their primary reason, it is to make you feel good and to sort of keep you sane. So I think when you and now restricting that, which you normally get, it's really hard and it's so different. And I guess, as you said as well, so if how you're training for a goal and, and you're working hard and it's almost quite serious and structured and then you're dropping it back down, you sort of wonder, oh, maybe I shouldn't be easing off this much. Maybe I should still be trying to fit in extra sessions or go harder or longer or whatever. But I think in terms of like just being race ready, you're so much better off being a little bit underdone than overdone and it's just not worth pushing into any injuries. Um, as well as I think it's also a good mental challenge to 
chill out just a little bit and it makes you appreciate the times when you do get to work really hard like when you have those easier weeks you then are more excited to train harder the next week or you know in a few weeks time so i guess hopefully it's like creating run hunger where you're like excited and ready to work hard um because i know i've um yeah it's so weird because i've had quite an easy last week I had like quite a few big volume weeks and I was so stoked feeling so good. And then I've just like dropped back from like, I had like probably average a month of around 85, 90 Ks. And then I did 70 K last week, which I was like, Oh my gosh, I've barely run at all. I feel like I've done nothing <laughs> more than I've done this whole time. <laughs> oh, but I don't know. It was just cause I had those big weeks and yeah. I was just feeling so good. And I just was like having the time for it and fitting it in. Mm. And yeah, I've just had this niggly tip ant, which is my, to be honest, anterior, if anyone wants to know. And I don't know whoever's listening. It's just the muscle on the side of the front of your shin if you want to look it up, you can. Um, but I just feel like I don't know how to describe that muscle to someone yeah. who doesn't know muscles. I'm like, well, it's a weird one because it's not one like, obviously there's much bigger muscles and everyone knows like, oh, you train your glutes, you train your hammies. Your yeah. People think of training. So I guess they're not as aware of. Yeah. And I'm like, do I like muscle. say to people, it's my calf or my knee or my shin? I'm like, it's yeah, in that shin. area. Shin is the shin. Yeah, I know. But I'm like, you know, anyway. <laughs> It's, well, it's not my calf, but I'm like, it's close enough. Yeah. Anyway, that's been a little bit sore. So I've just been extra cautious and going for the route of just do less and just make sure it's like not at all angry. And I think that's working because I actually feel quite good today, but I've run 10 Ks this week and it's Thursday and that's obviously a lot less than usual, but you know, it's good. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just needed and it's necessary, but it's so weird. Like I get home and I have so much time. Cause like I, I normally, I would get up, I'd go to the gym, like roughly between five and six and then I'd run between six and seven. And then I'd get home and I'd like really quickly, like run around the house and get ready and leave for work. And now I'm like, I get up, like actually, my day is always different, but I still go to the gym and then I go for my swim and like, I have still gone for one run. It's also, this is only like day four of this, but it's just so weird. And I come home and I'm like, wow, I've got so much time. Like, what should I do? And I'm like, I feel like there's so much time to just like hang out and like, I don't know, like do some uni prep, read my book, stretch. Like, just feel like I have a whole extra hour in the day because I do yeah, yeah. how good and um, you did say when you were doing those 100k weeks mm. I'm pretty sure you said this is a perfect recipe for an injury I did yeah and look what happened so yeah it's not an injury no but it's not <laughs> a comfortable thing and it's preventing you from running as much as you should be so true was it too much volume do you think um I think think oh it's a hard question I think yeah definitely looking at my Strava maps or graph I should say graph yeah it definitely was a spike in volume 100% and I think you know what there was a combination with a few nights of not much sleep Mm -hmm. and I actually think that was when it got sore Mm -hmm. so I knew that but that's okay 
And I think it's a good learning opportunity. And I think I saw it. Yeah, I saw it coming as well. But also in saying that, I feel like I've managed it really well because as I said, it started like basically exactly a week ago and I've still been able to run. I haven't actually had to completely stop and I'm not really in pain right now, which is good. Good news. Onwards and upwards. So, yeah, that's it. It's the way to go. Shoot for the stars. <laughs> that's it. Is that All what right. people say? <laughs> <laughs> We've got lots of weird quotes today. Um, shall we get into today's episode? Um, I think we should, Soph. Okay. I'm so excited. I'm so excited, uh, actually. I'm really excited. And I'm, you know what? I'm actually really excited to listen to this episode myself. Oh. Because I was there, right, not yeah. feeling very well. Um, yeah so, listeners if you notice i don't really say much at all um which was really tough because there's so many things i wanted to say but i just had this awful sore throat and it was just doesn't matter but basically i'm very quiet in this episode so i'm keen to listen back because i feel like i just wasn't focusing yes um, so was very unwell yeah. also just so you know we do record these uh remotely so oh, yeah. she wasn't spreading yeah. her covid oh, I germs i was negative by then too yeah, yeah, um, just so you know, and you can't contract COVID digitally, so it's fine. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so today's episode, we have Tony Sefton on, and he is mm. the head strength and conditioning coach. He made sure that we said head because he's got some staff under him now. So head strength and conditioning coach at Melbourne mm. University, um, which is so cool because, oh, is it our first interstate guest? Oh no, no, oh. Brody Sharp was Victoria as well. Oh, okay. Look, Sorry. Anyway, second, <laughs> just as good. <laughs> great guy, awesome. Like, just so good to talk to. He just knows so much. As Lydia would say, he's a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> you've said that about every guest. That's true. I think we need some new words. <laughs> um, but yeah, really smart guy. So we're super excited to have Tony on because. What first drew our interest to him is he's actually the coach, the strength and conditioning coach of Katrina Bissett. Hopefully you've all heard that name. She is the Australian 800 meter record holder, which is absolutely incredible. And she's most recently qualified for Tokyo Olympics for the 800 meters as she ran a sub two minute 800 at the Queensland Track Classic, which is really exciting. So Tony coaches her amongst a whole a whole variety of athletes. He's not just a running strength and conditioning coach, but he does coach run it. So it's definitely something that you probably be interested in listening to. Yeah, for sure. Um, and during the episode, we go over just a little bit about Tony's background, what he's done in the past. Um, and we dive into a little bit about what actually is a strength and conditioning coach, mm. what differentiates them between a PT, a running coach, all those sort of different terms. Um, we also chat a lot about why runners should lift weights, why it's important for them to do so, um, and whether or not strength and conditioning is just for elite athletes or if it's more for our sort of recreational runners as well. Um, we chat about injury prevention and performance with strength training, um, and then any sort of specific uh, movements that he suggests runners should implement, which is really good because we actually got some takeaways that you guys can use at home. Um, mm which is nice because often you kind of get from these experts, they don't really want to give away their secrets and tell you all the sort of things that work with for them. But he was really generous in sharing a few sort of tricks mm. and exercises that can be useful for you guys. Um, and then we look at exercise selection, a few different technical things with different movements there that we go into a little bit science heavy 
briefly. Yeah. Nice yeah. if you're into that sort of stuff. Um, and then just the difference between sort of elite and recreational runners and then some myths and errors that um, running athletes often come across. Yeah, I think that pretty much covers it, doesn't it? Um, yeah, wow. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Please send us a message if you've listened and if you have any ideas for future episodes or just your opinion, just your feedback. We really, really love it and we appreciate everyone who has messaged us with their feedback so far. Um, what do you think, Soph? Anything else yeah. you'd like to say? No, I reckon let's get to it. Enjoy, guys. All right. Welcome back, guys. Thanks for tuning in. We have Tony Sefton today, a strength and conditioning coach from the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Tony. Hi. Yeah, it's great to be here. A bit cold in Melbourne in the morning, but no, it's all good. <laughs> Winter's coming for sure. Yeah. I think we've all had a shock the last few days, actually, with the cool change in the weather. But that's all right. We're here, carrying on. <laughs> where in Australia um, are you? Where in Australia are you actually at? Oh. Sophie, where are you? I'm Newcastle. Yeah. Newcastle, and I'm in Coffs Harbour. So I, yeah. I can't complain. I've yeah, you're in the tropics. Yeah, I'm saying, nice part of the world. <laughs> yeah. Closer to the equator well, up there. Yeah. And you can you can feel the difference, actually, because I've just moved from the Central Coast to, like, near Sydney. And um, the water is so much warmer up here. It's actually really nice. But the air temperature is still cold. It's 11 degrees outside. That's freezing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we're all suffering with a bit of that. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Um, so, Tony, first of all, could you just uh, introduce who you are, what you do? I've obviously just said that you're a strength and conditioning coach, um, and I believe that you coach the elite athlete program at the Melbourne University. But is that exactly is that your title? What what exactly do you do? Yeah, I'm. A, I like to put in the head strength conditioning coach because I've oh. uh, just recently. Um, employed some new staff and stuff so we're um wow. we've got a bigger team now because obviously the program's growing and stuff so i i moved to australia in 2014 in november yeah. and then i joined the melbourne university in 2016 in april so i've been running the program ever since then we we have like about 300 athletes who actually get like a, a scholarship with the university but there's probably only about 100 that really get access to strength conditioning because like if you had 300 athletes, you just, it would be really hard to run a program for that. So yeah. we have, we have a mix of, I think that, I think the last count we had 32 different sports and there's wow. probably 60 engaged athletes that are getting individualized programs at the moment. And they range from athletics through judo, through karate, through, you know, there's so many different sports, rugby. Um, and, and yeah, we just, we build the program, make them individualized and, and, and off we go. So it's a busy time, but it's also a fun time. Sounds yeah, good. That's incredible. So um, do you work with all the other coaches sort of as a team or do you split up the athletes? We, we, then... we, we've, we've tried to do a multitude of different things. And I think we've landed on um, giving each coach their own athletes but then also yes. every athlete understands they can be coached by any one of our athletes based on the environment. So we train and set up their programs in a one-to-one -one session. And then the athletes would then, once they have their program, will come into what we call group training. And in that group mm -hmm. training, there might be three coaches working. And then depending on what the coach might see, we always try to encourage that it is a coaching environment. So that if there's an exercise that's 
not being done exactly correctly, that the coach would actually just say, just make sure that you're doing this and do that little bit of coaching and then step away and let them continue with the workout. So, yeah, it's um, it just means it's a really safe environment for people to be training and training hard because that's what athletes want to do. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and it becomes really we, – we've tried to build a family sort of attitude to it in that we're all supporting of each other and it's not reliant on one person to make you the best athlete. Or whatever. We have a number of coaches. We have a number of other athletes that also share, which becomes really good. So, yeah, it's a – it's actually a fun place to be, to be honest. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, wow, that's incredible. Um, so I guess for the listeners, what actually is a strength and conditioning coach? Because um, probably a lot of people hear that and think, oh, okay, like personal trainer, or they might think, oh, like you're, I mean, for our listeners, our audience is running, they might think, oh, that's a running coach, or is yep. it a physio? Or Like what, what actually is it? Well, um, it's, it's, it's funny because I think probably if you asked me that question 10 years ago, I used to get bent out of shape about being called a personal trainer because you <laughs> sort of, you go and do your, um, I mean, I started out as a personal trainer. Don't, I don't want to knock yeah. it. I actually enjoyed my time as a personal trainer and everything else. Mm. I think with a personal trainer, you just, it's the clientele becomes more, um, sort of like from, from health clubs or people wanting goals around, maybe running a marathon or weight loss or all of those sort of different. You might have the weekend warrior when it comes to strength conditioning, your application is more related to sport and sport only. So you don't have as much variation in terms of all of the other exercises, but to be honest, you know, the difference between an SNC and a personal trainer is that the SNC will work with sport athletes and a personal trainer can work with sport athletes, recreation. They can work with a much bigger variety. Um, I think the, I think from an individual point of view, you can be a passionate personal trainer and be as good, if not better than an SNC coach. So I don't think it's based on their skill set being any better. It just tends to be the audience that you work with. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed my time as a PT. I'm proud that I, I came from a PT background, but I have actually gone on and done some specific strength conditioning qualifications. And in Australia, it's, it's ASCA. So it's the Association of Strength yeah. Conditioning. And um, that, in itself then qualifies you to be considered as a, a title of a strength conditioning coach. Yes. Okay. So you got your qualifications in Australia then? No, I got mine in the UK. So I've the been, UK, I've yeah, been in, yeah. I've been in this game a little bit too long to need to get it. So I've, <laughs> I've been qualified for like 14 years under the UKCA wow. and they are as a, an organization, they all support each other. So there is mm. the NSCA, which is the American qualification, UKSCA and the ASCA, and they all sort of um, sort of recognize each of the coaches within the uh, countries that you could. So you could go to uh, England with an ASCA qualification and work as a strength conditioning coach. Oh, OK. Yeah, wow. Oh, that's fantastic. It sounds like you're very passionate, which is awesome. Sounds like you love what you do. I do. I mean, God, I'm, I'm getting on a little bit, but I suppose having these opportunities of working with so many young people, they just, with their passion that they bring in. I mean, Melbourne Uni is quite a unique um, setting because obviously they have their aspirations academically as well. And it's, you know, like mm. it's, it's, it's highly, um, they have to do a lot of work academically, but then they also have this dual passion for sport and to be the best version of themselves. And um not better people to come across really you know they, they always yeah. bring something to the to the session and and we do try to have um we do try to bring fun into our sessions and that's where that sort of family sort of um 
underlying community sort of stuff that we have with with the gym but uh, also we have this what we call the flick switch in that when you actually are going to be doing your exercise you have to switch your concentration on so I know many coaches out there like no mobile phones and they like it to be right let's do our work and stuff I'm actually more inclined to have fun within the environment have lots of conversation and then you flick the switch when you do your exercise because I think that is transferable to sport so mm. um, yeah it's, it's a really good environment I, I can't sell it anymore to anyone else mm. out there and you know you're more than welcome if you're ever down to pop in and, <laughs> and come in a session and you can actually see it real time so oh, that's awesome I, lo- I love to hear that because it sounds almost like almost like a contradiction to probably what a lot of people think um, elite athletics or elite performance might look like and people might expect it to be I mean I'm sure that it is very serious probably still but it's nice to hear that um, you like to think of it more like a family and you like people to have fun and enjoy it because I mean surely looking at the bigger picture ultimately you want people to get value not just in their results but value out of their training beyond that um, in their life so it's nice to hear that you see it see it like that it's awesome I've I've watched a lot of uh, videos of the high performance um, in high performance settings and if you watch some of the All Blacks which is probably the greatest sporting team with the greatest winning record in a professional sport and when you actually watch them in the gym there's a lot of banter flying around there they really are having the sort of bonding side and I think that's the strength of the team in that they are Mm. bonded really well and I think the gym's a really good environment for that but when you then see them get onto the bar and you get them to see them do the exercise, there's no messing around. That that bit has yeah. then stopped and they get down yeah. and do work. But they can flick in between that. And I think that can be practiced. That is a skill. Mm. If you're thinking at the start of a race, maybe, you know, like on the track, if you do run an 800 or a 400 or whatever, you do have that sort of bit where you have that time to yourself where you've done your warm up and you've sort of got not the... You've, you've, you've got all the body ready, then there's the serious bit where you have to flick the switch where you've got to mm. react to the gun. And I think you can practice that in the gym. And I think that idea of being able to switch it on and switch yeah. it off is a really good uh, skill to be, be able to practice. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I guess now what we'd really like to chat about, what we'd like to move into is about why why it's important for an athlete to lift weights and for a runner um because I think a lot of runners aren't always super excited by the idea of spending time in the gym because it just seems so pointless it's like you know if I want to get better at running I should just be running Um, but why is it important to lift weights and is it just if you're an elite athlete or can any runner gain from lifting weights well, um, I've just introduced the idea that the gym can be a fun place. So that's one of the myths already gone. So it, you can have fun there. Um, and then the second thing is, is that, you know, if everything else is even, the strongest athlete will always win. That's just that we know that you can look that through the thing. So do all athletes need to lift? Um, again, individually, if you're looking at uh, from a high performance perspective, what we've got to look at is that not all programs are going to look the same. So some people might want to lift heavy because there is a need or they have the potential to gain benefit and the transfer into running. There may be athletes that don't need to lift and can do more body weight exercises and have more conditioning. It really depends on where they actually are entering into the spectrum yeah, and to where sure. what, what their outcomes are. Do all runners 
Would they benefit from running? 100%. There's not a single athlete out there that you could ever meet that says, I will be a better athlete by not doing strength training. Mm. Now, what strength training looks like, I'm going to chuck in yoga, Pilates, lifting weights, um, um, CrossFit. I know that you, I listened to one of your other podcasts and there's a little bit of CrossFit going out there. And so you could all benefit from all of the different aspects of training. But my philosophy will be is that I would meet you, understand a little bit about how you move and then meet that need with the exercises that I prescribe. But in a training session as a strength coach, it's not all lifting a heavy uh, barbell or Olympic lifting. I use Pilates techniques. We have yoga movements. We have primal movements where you're crouching on the floor doing bear crawls and stuff so i have a lot of variation of exercises that i use so it's not one it, it doesn't just mean lifting weights in a gym i think it's yeah. it's more of a an individual perspective on that so it sounds like um from what i'm understanding what you're saying it's that all athletes will benefit from strength work but for every athlete everyone's got different deficits and different sort of weak links and sounds like in the gym is like okay we're, we're coming back to um figuring out what this individual athlete is missing and what we can work on to then get everything up to the same point to then push them further in their performance 100 i just think we um if you try to sell to a, a runner oh you've got to go and join a gym for you to get strong i think that's the myth yeah. it's not about joining yeah. a gym the gym is just the place where the exercise occurs what you're looking for is exercises that's going to help and improve your performance. If that's your goal, you know, sometimes we do exercises to make us a little bit more robust that so we're preventing injuries. So it's not mm -hmm. always about um, making everybody better because there may be a lot of recreational runners out there that just want to keep doing what they're doing. So they're trying mm -hmm. to maintain and, yeah. you know, just making everybody high performance strong doesn't necessarily make them a better athlete. So this is the controversial bit that I, I, I like to get into sometimes is that some athletes go with the intention of trying to get stronger because they've been sold that being a stronger athlete is going to happen. But there is what I believe is strong enough, which means you don't just keep chasing after strength to just become stronger and stronger in the belief that the very strongest athlete is going to be the best runner. It's right. the strongest version of yourself. It's, um, becoming stronger than what you were will make you a better athlete. But if you chase after strength too much and you get, it's hard to say too strong, but it's <laughs> if you become too strong for what you need to be able to transfer to your performance, then some athletes spend too much time in the gym. They do too much work. And, and I, I see that across all the sports. There's a, there's a, I, I have a background in golf and there was a time where I used to see golfers spending more time in the golf uh, more time actually in the gym rather than playing golf. And if they looked at their stats and realized that their, their putting isn't up to the standard at which they play, and if they made improvements on putting, you have to find time to practice. And giving yeah. away an extra two, three hours into the gym that isn't going to really make that much difference into their performance, they would be better spent putting. So where that sits, it makes it really hard for us yeah. to then give advice out to what each individual needs because my style is to meet the person and individualize the program and, and look for those gains in trying to improve some of the weaknesses or where there's some early wins. But everything we do has to come back to the transfer of the gym to the running to meet the goal and make them actually improve all of the time. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. So it sounds like you're sort of, yeah, picking up all the different parts, pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. And so I guess if, yeah, if an athlete is just spending more and more hours in the gym, it's like that time and energy and effort could be put potentially into more running. But you look, you're just looking for the weakest link potentially. It kind of sounds like. Yeah, you just I mean, from an athlete. Probably more to it. Yeah, look, from a, if it was like a recreational runner, they would benefit from doing some some leg exercises to make them stronger. And and, and it really depends on what the detriment is. Um, we talk about reverse engineering as a way of programming. So it's looking at what's the outcome. So if it's like to run a sub four hour marathon, then you then have to then look at the mileage that what it takes go to the evidence of programs that are written for. So what I always used to do when I used to write as a personal trainer uh, for marathon programs was take what they had out in runner's world as a, a plan for the marathon from January to April. Cause obviously it was the London um, would, would be the marathon that we'd be working on. So we tended to work from January through to April and then they would have mileage each week. And then I would take that mileage and then speak to the athlete that's come along, work out what their goal was, and then looked at how their life was. So you often had like these run five times a week. But when you're working in London, you often find that people only would have time to run three times a week. So how do you then change that program to meet the needs of the individual? So we used to just play around with the weekly loads, putting it into three days a week, make sure there's plenty of recovery. Now, if you're doing a five-day training program and condensing it to three, I would suggest you need to do some strength work because you're going to be having bigger mileages on each of the days and you need to become a little bit more robust to that. If you're spreading your workload across seven days, then you can almost handle the load a little bit better. Does, does that make sense? And yeah, I think that's where yeah. your individual understanding of what, how many times do you go for a run? How strong do you need to be? What is your injury history and stuff? So it, it, mm -hmm. the greatest thing about it is every individual is different and it just keeps testing your knowledge and your expertise or um, the aspects of how you build these programs and for everyone that I've got a success story there is probably a story in the past hopefully that um, where we didn't quite get it right and that becomes the learning experiences of, of, of writing better programs. Yeah interesting so how much then do you think of your role is actually just about injury prevention as opposed to that sort of higher level performance because I mean obviously the idea is to make athletes perform better but part of performing better is having less time out with injury right so you know when you talk to them before about making the athlete more robust to cope with their running sessions how much of the work you do in the gym is just purely about uh, preventing injury in my mind I have the idea of robust is a is a is a huge part of what I'm trying to achieve, mm. making yeah. them, making an athlete. And if we're talking specifically about running, remember I do an awful lot of sports out there, but if we're talking yeah. specifically about running, my yeah. first initiative, initiative uh, my first initial thought is where are the most common injuries for runners? So we know yeah, 30% of most runners are the Achilles. Yeah. yeah. Then you have like runners knee and, and, and posture related exercises. Stuff. So, those are the things that I'm sort of conscious of. So I build a program to then tailor it towards limiting um, the exposure to being able to get one of those injuries. And if you have a uh, long distance runner, like marathon runners or ultra runners, you know that um, tendonitis tends to be the one that you need to be aware of and then, and then making them robust for that. So it is mobility, 
joint joint mobility it is flexibility and it is about strength and we know that if you're trying to train the achilles and you've got that little bit of tendonitis in the achilles it it really responds well to heavy load now that's where i'd say yeah. to you is if you've got achilles tendon pain and you're trying to do bodyweight exercises unfortunately it's not going to work because that's not what the science says it needs that heavy loading so that is something that would have to be trained in more of a gym environment where you could create the additional load to be able to help you get over that injury and and i suppose that's where i was talking about earlier on about what is the correct environment for you to be able to do it and it really depends on what it is that you're trying to achieve but there is uh, when when a runner turns around and says i don't need the gym I, I think it's a myth because obviously if you have these pains that need load, you do need that environment to be able to train those correct exercises to help you recover from your injury. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting as well, looking at it the other way around, as you were saying, being aware of what injuries are quite common and then trying to prevent those. I think a lot of times people just run, get injured and then start doing the rehab exercises, have time off running, try and get back into it. But if you can start doing the common rehab exercises that people do when they're injured before you're injured, right. your chances of getting the injury probably reduced, I guess. That's my thoughts. Exactly. That mm. is that um, if you know what's coming up in the future, then bulletproof yourself to try and prevent it from happening. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with every major exercise, there's always a rest period where you can put a lower level exercise in that can build on strengthening the posterior. I mean, if we've got into the language of it, it is the posterior kinetic chain that we're really working um, in layman's yeah. terms. That's any muscle from your ear to your ankle um, down the back side of the body. Any muscles yeah. in around that area would really assist the runner to hold better posture, um, have better functioning around the hips and then obviously strengthening from the hips, knee and ankle. Um, so that, that is the, that's the, I try to make training very simple in terms of my thought processes, mm. but when we then move up through the higher performance, then it becomes using a little bit more of that sports science, uh, approach and, and understanding. I mean, I love working with physios. Physios have taught me an awful lot about the industry and about how to, to come up with these ideas around trying to make your athlete a little bit more bulletproof. And I think mm. that's, an opportunity that strength conditioning coaches may get a little bit more than say personal trainers to really collaborate yeah. with fellow professionals um, to actually help you become more knowledgeable in the area. And um, yeah, I think that's, that this is, it's exactly that it's about knowing that prehab can happen all the time and you mm. don't want to get caught in that trap of training hard, get injured, recover, training hard, get injured, recover. You've got to mm. break that cycle. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really interesting to hear. I think um, like myself, like at least my experiences, I've definitely shifted my strength training sort of program to be a lot more. It's all just about looking at the common running injuries and trying to strength train for them before I get them. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to hear that that's what I guess what you're doing with some of your athletes. Um, is there any particular exercises that for runners so obviously you talk about the common injuries and you talk about the posterior chain are there exercises that you'll just about always give to a runner I understand that it probably does vary a lot but is there sort of go-to ones that you think you no know, all of my running athletes they need to be doing calf raises or whatever yeah. it is <laughs> and, and I get a rise smile because my answer is going to be um slightly off center in that oh, okay. everyone's going to think that we we're going to be training the legs we're going to do it from the hips yeah. down 
actually, I yeah. believe that for a lot of the high performance athletes I work, a lot of their what we call leaking energy. So when, you, when you're running, if you're leaking energy and it's not going in the direction that you're running, then that's a deficit. That's not an efficiency. And I think an awful lot of that comes from the hips to the shoulders. So we ah, do okay. do a lot of um, posture based work. So my athletes mm. do do upper body work. So it's not all legs. It's actually mm -hmm. an awful lot of um, setting from, you know, like basically being able to set the scapula correctly, being able to hold plank with movement around it. Um, so planks are really good. I think in the recreational world that they just hold a plank and that's not how the body moves. We don't just lock a body position in and then just hold it for time. There's people tell me they can hold it for five minutes and I'll be going, yeah. I, I've known Olympic <laughs> athletes that can't hold it for five minutes. So I'm just wondering what it is that they're actually doing in that. Um, yeah. Sport is done with movement. So if your yeah. training comes around just holding a position without moving, I'm not sure how much that transfers. <laughs> so there yeah. is a whole, a whole idea of that. I call it bracing. So it's learning how to brace the feeling of what it is when you do a plank and then move your arms, move your legs. And then, that then makes it a little bit more transferable because as soon as you lift, like if you're holding a plank and you do like a, a rear leg raise, you'll notice that the, the pelvis will drop. Mm -hmm. Well, then how do you then control that, that when you move your leg, that your pelvis doesn't drop? So if you're, yeah. if you're, if you're going to be doing that in a running action when you're standing up and every time your leg goes to the, the rear of your body, your pelvis tilts, then we've got some psoas and some of the little subsystems of the pelvis beginning to do some work that maybe that they don't really want to do. But post your run, they go tight. And now we're mm. starting on that, that whole scenario of where dysfunction is actually being trained. So I think posture related exercises are really important, but they must involve bracing with movement, such as a, a paloff press is a really good exercise where you hold a posture and then you punch your arms out against a resistance that is mm. trying to create a rotational force. Now, I know my language is now getting a little bit technical, but That's again, if you, just put, if you just put paloff press into uh, YouTube, you'll see the exercise yeah. that I'm talking about. And that's more of an anti-rotation exercise. Yeah. And that's about a force trying to create rotation, but you're resisting, which builds the strength against rotational forces. Now, if that is a, for a runner, it's stopping us from moving our shoulders left and right when we're running, mm. that's going to be really beneficial. So I think that's the, that's a really good opportunity for all recreational runners to stop doing crunches, stop doing planks and actually start and doing what is known as more like bracing based exercises with movement and it's amazing how quickly that you really start getting the feeling of being very upright. And then that enables your pelvis and your legs to create the force for you to run fast. Yeah. Sounds good. That's awesome. I know, um, yeah, Soph loves the pelvis press, don't you, Soph? <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's really interesting to hear. So I guess that sounds a lot like more on the performance side but I guess obviously your posture is going to relate to injury prevention as well um how do you create robust knees because I feel like knee pain is what every second person tells me about running okay <laughs> oh, I can't run because of my knees <laughs> yeah look the chair is probably not a good invention for the human person to be able to go and do running because it creates us in a, a slump position it shortens yeah. the hamstrings and then when we run we want the lengthening in the hamstring so I think there's a lot that happens in our daily routine that affects our ability to run fast. 
and some of your training isn't about see because what what we have in the world is you go to an snc coach and everything they just want to get better at running so let's do the plyometrics let's do all the high yeah. intensity stuff do all the things that is supposed to advance our performance but you have to understand you've got to undo what happens during the day so if someone's sitting at a desk for eight hours a day they're going to have shortened hamstrings they're going to have hip flexors that are going to be tight so your strengthening isn't necessarily about creating more dynamic more powerful exercises it's about undoing what what is created in tightness and dysfunction through daily living so i think they're some of the considerations that we need to have to make knees robust you've got to look at the from and this it comes back to the physios will tell us all about this about where our, uh, our slings are where our muscles are tight so the iliotibial band is a very long muscle that runs down the outside of the leg that creates a lot of lateral tension which means then that tightens you then get pressure from the knee moving into a medial plane so you've got lateral tension medial direction of the knee when the knee bends and then you're trying to run straight forward that's where the problem comes so it's Mm. flexibility mobility what i try to do with a lot of athletes is try to give them an understanding of where their benchmark is or where they're lying in the sand this is my body feeling good so that when they get tight, they have an awareness of that benchmark and going, actually, yeah, I feel a bit tighter today. Well, don't ignore that information. That's time to foam roll, stretch and get back to your baseline or your benchmark and then go and perform. So there is no warm up routine that should look the same every day. You have all of your stretches and your mobility exercises that you understand. And then based on what you wake up in the day, you might do too because you're feeling really good and you know that you're close to your your benchmark. There might be a really hard run that you do or it might have been raining or you might have done some hills that you actually have to do a longer warm up because your body is further away from the benchmark. And I don't think that happens. Everyone does their normal warm up, whether their body needs more or less. And I think that's where injuries occur. That's, that would be me. I'll put my hat on that. That's where I think these overuse injuries come from is that we don't pay attention to our bodies about whether it's at its base level or its benchmark or whether it's actually starting to get tight. And then you keep that process going three months later. That's when you're going to develop an overuse injury. Interesting. Yeah. So you think the warm up is actually quite a good tool to sort of check in with your body and see what's tight, what's stiff. That body check, that's exactly what I call it. It's checking with your body to know what it needs to perform that day. And that also Mm -hmm. comes into consideration is what you're going to do. So if you're going to do a light, easy run, why do a 20, 30-minute warm-up? Because the intensity of it is meant to be a recovery run. But if you're going to go and do a track speed hill session, be prepared that you're going to be given a big whack through your calves. So warm them up uh, accordingly. Um, coming back to robust knees, um, yes. how do you balance eccentric and concentric strength work? Do you, obviously, <laughs> I know we just spoke about it again. Um, <laughs> being technical, compared to not being technical, but um, I want to know, like, do you take that into consideration? Obviously, pretty much every um, movement has both. Like, you can't really avoid one, but do you consider that in your training programs and i imagine it's very dependent upon each person and what they need where their gaps are yeah. um, but can we thoughts around oh can we explain that to our listeners that may not know what those terms mean first of all <laughs> yeah so you yeah, yeah. Yes. 
So concentric is basically load into the muscle when the muscle shortens. So if you're doing a bicep curl, it's like the bicep at the bottom of the movement. And then as you bring it up to your shoulder, that's the concentric. The eccentric loading is when um, the load is loaded into the muscle whilst it lengthens, which from the shoulder back down to its starting position, the bicep curl, that would be the eccentric. Phase. Perfect. Thank you. Oh, that was a good answer, wasn't it? Um, yeah, that was very good. So whether I work concentric or eccentric, I think it's really interesting since I've been working with some of the physios at the VIS, um, we've talked a lot about trying to hit the strength across many different aspects so I probably mm. do a little bit more isometric work than I've ever done before ah. which is just holding a specific position um, under load now when you're holding a position you can load it a lot heavier so if yeah. we were looking at like a, a car phrase that we might do one and a half times your own body weight loaded in a specific position so if you've got a 60k athlete we would be holding 90 kilos and then just holding the calf at a specific position. So that's a high performance um, sort of uh, benchmark that we're working. And if it's in a double leg, then you're looking for two, maybe three times their body weight. Um, so I do a lot more isometric work than they ever have done. But then across the, the training week, we want to be able to, rather than it being concentric and eccentric as being the two different types of exercises, I tend to look at, if I was training... Um, the calf I would want to do a standing version a bent leg version so a seated position I'd look at an isometric and I'd probably look at some eccentric loading so the concentric mm. is like calf raises would normally be and that would be um the way that I look at it. would I look across that any differently from a recreational runner to a high performance probably not but it then comes down to the environment can they get that eccentric loading if they're only going to train at home no, they can't. So then that one would possibly have to be removed from the, uh, the equation. And then one of the things that we're starting to move into with, because I, I trained Katrina Bissett, and if everyone out there knows that she's the 800 meter national record holder and she's qualified for the Olympics and it's, very, you know, it's all on her own benefit. I'm, I'm just the person that stands talking to her while she trains. Um, but we also now look at the, the speed at which the contraction occurs as well. So that's when we're starting mm. to then look at the plyometric application but uh, you know yeah. everyone tells me that you know that we should be doing these high force exercises you have to look at the structure of the ankle and the way that it uh, produces force and if it hasn't got the ability to be robust and stable don't put a higher force through it because you're going to end up in a, in a real mess you're going to end up picking up little niggles all over the place so it is about make your movement clean straight uh, do all of those other stuff first um but it, you, if you jumped on YouTube and you looked at some of the advices, everyone says runners would really benefit from plyometrics because you get this stored energy that comes out of the ankle that will yeah. make you run faster. It's also a, a recipe to make you more injured as well if you're not ready for it. So it, yeah. that's definitely not a starting point for all runners. Did that answer the question? I know you asked about eccentric eccentric, <laughs> but I sort of went yeah, off in no, my own does. little avenue on yeah. that. But it is looking yeah. around. Movement is my most important thing. So if I'm looking with an athlete is that you move well, the movement has, the movement has to look fluid. Fluid is where it goes down, it goes up and there's no break in the speed and it looks under control. Um, nice. Consistency is the second thing I'm looking for that you meet the loads with the reps and the sets, the way the program was written. And you do that on a regular basis. Uh, talking about Katrina, I think she's missed 
probably if it has there there are a couple of niggling injuries along the way but if i thought on how many times over the last three and a half years she's missed a training session it probably would be less than 10 sessions mm, and that wow. might be because she's got an appointment or that we just mm. couldn't make our, our timetables um actually meet and that consistency over that length of time enables her to be able to perform at the level that she does and that's the same with her running as well so it's for me it's movement consistency and then the third thing I think that's important in session is passion from the coach and passion from the athlete I love that that's awesome yeah that's fantastic yeah I think consistency um, is, is becoming a little bit more of a buzzword now maybe people starting to realize that you've actually got to show up not just on a Monday but all the other days or whatever days you've scheduled. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting how you're talking about the plyometrics because I think if you put in to YouTube runners workout, you see people doing jump lunges and box jumps and single leg hops, which all um, look quite good. Like they look like, oh yeah, like that's very specific to running. But I guess what you're talking about when you say you're potentially going to create more issues than you're solving kind of makes sense too because if someone hasn't got the strength in their calf muscles in their soleus let's say and they're already doing a big load of running they're already fatiguing that muscle and then you add in more jumping I mean yeah it makes sense that they're just going to get injured so it sounds like you would then go okay we're going to look at the isometrics and then the eccentrics and then potentially work to the plyo stuff is that sort of how yep. you'd approach that I, I definitely want to get into the plyos i definitely want to get that advantage and that power and that strength and that speed that you can produce nice. in those type of movements yeah. but it's got to be at the right time and yeah okay. we sometimes jump to it a little bit too easy you know there is a, a you should really be able to assess your athlete to make sure that they can jump with efficiency. And if the efficiency mm. isn't there, then you're only gonna create more dysfunction. Here's a, here's a free one for the audience and stuff. There is a company in America called Altis and one of their lead coaches um, is Dan Path. And I had the opportunity to uh, do a workshop with Dan uh, probably about 18 months, oh no, COVID. It was probably two and a half. God, there you go, there's oh. that COVID thing. <laughs> two and a half yeah. years ago. Um, yeah. If you go onto their website, they have um, some free resources called um, the Rudimental Series. And there's okay. uh, two ones that they actually do, which is the Hop Series. And then they also do one which is called the Dribbles. If you want yeah. to start touching into preparing yourself for plyometric and stuff, download those two free resources and, and it's coached. There are videos of the exercises. That is what we're talking about when you want to start in an assessment for plyometric. Cool. I actually run those, both of those exercises with all my high performance athletes. And it would also be used as an assessment tool for any runner that I ever meet. So that, that's two really good resources that has all of the science behind it. It's explained really well. And there are videos with it as well. And I think those could be the type of movements that you incorporate into your warm up before you're going to do a, like a big hill session or where you're going to really load the calf mm. in preparing it for those type of um, those running sessions. That's awesome. So what was it called? ATIF. Did you say ATIF? ALTIS. A-L-T-I-S, I think it is. ALTIS. Okay. Yeah. I always look at it. I keep thinking it says ATLAS, but it doesn't. I've been corrected on that a lot of times. It's almost like you look at the word and you think, oh, I know what that is before you've actually read it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I do that all the time. 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, so how then do you manage um, those sort of like, because I guess you've just mentioned timings being really important. How do you manage strength with then a, a runner's running session? Because I think that's the other thing that a lot of runners find difficult too is like, do they do it on their long, easy run day or do they do it on their hill session or do they do it on a rest day and they do it back to back morning, afternoon. Is there a, um, a one size fits all approach to that? I'm guessing that's not, but no, you, you've um, just explained the answer yourself. <laughs> there are so many variables that well, comes into yeah. the equation. And I think the variables are on a sliding scale because they change. So if you've got, mm. um, I mean, I'm just trying to think of some of the running programs. If you know that you're coming up to a, a rate and your intensity is going to go up, but the volume is going to come down, a lot of people then sort of think, oh, I've got more opportunity to do strength. And I'd say, no, actually, if your sessions get harder, you're going to need more recovery time. So don't fill your program just because a, a high intensity session might take 40 minutes rather than going on a long run that might take two and a half. Not everything is equal. Time is not equal in a training program. And I think that's one of the things yeah. that we have to learn. We have to go time also then times it by the intensity at which the session. Be aware of, nice. of how long it takes to recover from a session. And every individual is different. Katrina, for instance, is really interesting in that I think now she's got to such a stage. She could race an 800 meter and then train in the gym the very next day. Um, yeah, well. but I wouldn't give that advice to everybody. That's something that we've learned along the process. Um, I might have another 800 meters. So I wouldn't see for two days because it's just the nature of recovery. So each individual is different. Um, you were saying about when to put the strength sessions in. I think what we have to be aware of is 20, 24 hours is not a day. So if I do my training session at midday on, on, on a Tuesday at 12 o'clock, 24 hours recovery to run again would be Wednesday anytime after 12 o'clock. So this whole idea is that you should have a day off. Try and think of it more as 24 hours. And I would mm. say, actually, we could condense that to, depending on the intensity, we can make it 18 hours. If you're going lower than 18 and you're trying to back-to-back -back, um, sessions, I think you have to be really careful about how and be aware of how you pull up afterwards and how well you recovered or what was the quality of the session? Um, uh, and that's the individual bit. But I, I definitely think that you could train every day, but you do need to make sure that there is at least one sleep in between the sessions. So you actually literally have one sleeping period and you're looking for good quality sleep in that. And then you can then condense down to about 18 hours, but 24 is, is, is the norm. So you, so do you, you mean between strength or a strength and a run or either? Between training sessions. Any. Yeah, yeah, right. So you wouldn't do a morning and an afternoon. Um, I would if it was a run and a, and a strength because the, the fitness components are different. But mm -hmm. I wouldn't do two days in consecutive of doing um, double days. So in a mm -hmm. week, you might say, say you had a Monday and you did a, a run in the morning, strength in the afternoon, a run in the morning, strength in the afternoon or, or another X or an easy run. You can't repeat that for the rest of the week. Mm. That's that's done. You can only do two days of hard training back to back once a week. And then yeah, ideally you no. would put a rest recovery in between. Um, this is probably the hardest part of programming is to work out when you can dose. And we think, think of training as dosing of when can I dose that level of training that when I put my second dose in, 
that it's not affected by the training I did before. And the dose that I put in doesn't then affect the training that comes afterwards. So be aware Mm -hmm. of when you want to do your intense sessions to get the adaptation, they need to be followed by recovery. Um, And I I can't explain it any more simpler than just those sort of terms because it is quite technical and very rarely do I get it right first time. It's like I have to manipulate it. And then what ends up happening is I, I get it right and then the coach changes the running training sessions, which means I have to change it again. So um, if you are, uh, this is the high performance world. If you're a recreational runner, you, you probably don't do the same volume of training as some of our high performance athletes. So I think that scenario gets a little bit easier, but you mm. definitely can do a, an hour's run and strength in the same day. But if you're a recreational runner, you probably want to take the next day off. And if that doesn't yeah. fit with your time schedule, um, work it for whatever you can. But just uh, it comes back to my philosophy of knowing what your benchmark body feels like. So if you get up the next day and you're going to go for a run, but your calves are stiff or your back's tight because you've done it, then you didn't recover well enough that night before or from your stretch, your mobilization, which means if you are still going to be committed to go for that run, then you need to do a bigger warm up to get your body back mm-hmm. to that benchmark. And if you're aware of that benchmark, you will reduce your injuries and you will also have better backed up quality sessions because the body's ready to perform. And mm-hmm. I think there is a little bit of a myth is that you have to feel 100% great to go for a run. Most, most athletes I know are carrying some form of tightness or niggles most of the time, because that's what it takes to be a, a high performance athlete. And I think if you're doing a marathon training, I've run a marathon, and I know that I was pretty much stiff all the time. So it was, uh, it was quite an unusual experience of, um, of like four months of just feeling. Actually, when the marathon finished, I felt great because it was all over. I didn't have to go and do it. Yeah, <laughs> it was behind you. Gosh. So it sounds like recovery is the big thing there. Uh, it sounds like that's very important, I guess, for prevention of injury and performance um what about the athlete and i i think this is common in the recreational runner as well but the athlete that says oh i don't need a rest day like or, or just one rest day is fine like i can do back-to-back sessions i feel fine i feel good because obviously um you know enthusiasm is great motivation is great consistency is great but um are they just missing out on quality sessions and they just don't realize it or are they just heading towards an injury how do you approach that? It's a myth. It's a myth that you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a myth that you don't need seven hours sleep. If you look at the sleep research yeah. and everything they've done is that seven is a minimum. So if you're if you're that warrior that says, "Oh, I only need four hours sleep," <laughs> at some point you're missing out because there are uh, chemicals that get released only at sleep. So the recovery mechanisms and and the hormones that we need are only released when you get into that rapid eye movement or REM sleep. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of uh, really good podcasts out there on sleep. So for athletes, if you think you can get by without seven hours sleep, you are missing out on recovery processes that will lead you to get injured or will have a detriment to your performance. So if sleep is that important, then obviously rest and recovery has to be sitting in the same family. And if you feel that you are able to do good performances and you're able to back up and you convince yourself of that, you're probably right, but you're only going to be able to do it for a short period of time because at some mm. point you're missing out. And unfortunately, I don't know of too many athletes in my whole career that have never had an injury. And I just wonder 
where they came from and, and how they possibly could be prevented. Cause that's part of my role. If I can prevent injuries, athletes can go and perform, but there's no injured athlete that ever performs too well. Um, and if they are injured, nope. they often don't, get to, don't even get to the line. So yeah. I think rest and recovery in the modern day program is programmed as much as the exercises that we prescribe. We have to understand that recovery is, is that important as much as doing yeah. an exercise it's important to actually understand um, the recovery process. I had a session just this week where I said to an athlete, um, uh, we're not going to do a session today. I actually don't think your body's ready for it. And we actually canceled the session and sent them home because I valued that the rest and recovery was more important than actually loading the body as well. And, mm. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard sell to athletes sometimes and they have to go with my experience, but I will actually stop them from training in the gym. If they then go outside and train in an alternative gym, then that's them. That's up to them. But they've got to go with um, my advice and experience in knowing that that they have to respect their bodies. And if they're not moving well, then it's a really clear indication that they haven't recovered from the loading the day before. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I and think I, there's probably a lot of people who need that advice. <laughs> and and the other thing is, is that we sometimes look at injuries as being like, oh, I've, I've damaged a leg or a joint and stuff, but also be aware of like asthma coming on a little bit harder or you're picking up colds frequently mm. or that you've got sore throats all the time. That, that's in the injury family, because I guarantee you, if you've got a sore throat, you're not going to be able to hit out a real high quality training session. So that, mm. that is a clear indication that you're maybe not recovering. So I think it's not just about injuries. It's also about other health conditions as well that may not seem so extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that um, comes back to what you were saying about the body check in your warm up as well. It's an opportunity to really slow down and assess how you're feeling everywhere and just check in with yourself and make sure that you are ready to give this intensity session the intensity that it is needed or required or programmed. It's consistency yeah. based around hitting the training session the way it was designed and written. Yeah. And I often find that if you really ask the honest athlete when they're training is that they might have a high intensity one and they only really hit 80% of it. And if that's not the way the coach wrote the session, then you're not going to get the adaptation. So mm. you may be getting, you may be surviving, but you're not thriving. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I like that. that. There you go. <laughs> nice. Yeah, right. Yeah. Print that up. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Is there any benefit, do you think, though? Um, I mean, I guess it's a fine line, but I'm, I'm trying to think if oh, I feel like I've heard someone talk about um, talk about this before, about like teetering on the edge of like how much can you push yourself like that balance between um you know trying to increase your capacity but you know you're being cautious to prevent injury as well um and talking about elite athletes are sort of just like trying to push it just that little bit more that little bit more and it's a fine line sometimes do you think there is a benefit sometimes to having that real sort of accumulation of load and some hard back-to-back sessions to like really sort of build fatigue in an athlete or I guess maybe it's just so variable and it depends when a competition is I'm not sure that's quite a vague question isn't it <laughs> no and I, I totally get it there are methods used by coaches which they um, do overcompensation so they basically yeah. run a session where you just have to find something you have to dig deep and yes and your body it. hasn't your body hasn't recovered and when it does that that effort it actually 
creates this super compensation where you get a, a extra added performance. I, I'm going to have to put that that is in the high performance world. It's like, mm. and it's a method that you can't run for too long. So you do need to yeah. have the expertise of the coach that's doing it. I know that um, Katrina Bissett's coach is actually Peter Fortune, who is mm -hmm. um, Kathy Freeman's old coach. And wow, he's yeah. a wealth of knowledge. He's a, he's a phenomenal coach to be around and just discuss. There's not much that he doesn't know. And he has a reputation that his trainings are always hard. And so he does push people close to what we call the envelope of the edge of performance. Yeah, and that's why he has yeah. so much successes. But he has a wealth of knowledge and he knows when to. And the easy runs, he makes sure that the athletes does do the easy runs. So, yeah, it's, it, there is definitely a, a high performance efforts of, yeah. of really pushing you beyond the boundaries of just because again I think within each athlete you know when you've got some you've got some of the super performances of the very best athletes in the world what makes them special might be that mm. little bit that we're talking about is that they have this dose yeah. which just pushes themselves beyond and and they're closer to the very best that they are that they can be and maybe that's the difference people may feel that they're doing a hundred percent but actually from a coach's perspective that may not may only be 80% of themselves. So how do you get someone who feels that are a hundred, but are only performing at 80, because there's still 20% to gather. So maybe that's that method of where you over push them on their averages of their times for each of the sets to get them closer to their hundred percent. But I don't think you should be trying to create people that are overreaching. And I think that's the other yeah. language that people use because overreaching over a prolonged period of time yeah. will relate to injuries or that ugly word of overtraining. Yes, yeah. And I guess particularly in um, the re recreational athlete space, you haven't got um, an SNC coach and your running coach. You haven't got a dietitian. You haven't got a team looking out for you or considering your programming. You're just sort of going, yep, yep, I'm pushing, I'm pushing. Like, this is good. I'm working hard. I'm on the grind. But it's, yeah, I guess what you're saying is it's not – that sort of potential overreaching isn't something that you just sort of do randomly. It's very um, planned and it's in specific doses at specific that, times. And that's the language it's planned. I mean, when we come closer to the Olympics, uh, Fort will have a very strong involvement in how many strength doses is that we give to Katrina. And mm. um, we have, we have a meeting um, probably every month that is physio, SNC, coach, athlete, management, and and all those things to discuss. So that's that's what the high performance mm. world looks like. And you know, when I did my personal training to ever meet up, I, I sometimes would have an athlete, <laughs> and very rarely did I ever speak to the coach and sort of stuff like that. So behind the curtain, that's the type of meetings that are occurring. And you know, the support team that a high performance athlete has um, makes all of the difference. So if you are an athlete that is budding to get to the higher levels within that, then the consideration of having a, a team around you who can advise you in these areas is, is massively important. Mm, that's very interesting. Is there um, any other sort of, I mean, I'm sure there's many, but the, like, what are the biggest differences between a recreational runner or a recreational athlete weekend warrior compared to the elite? I mean, obviously the actual performance outcomes are very different. Um, and the team behind them. And I guess what we've just spoken about with the, um, you know, 
overreaching or that the extra push. But are there other sort of big differences that you notice potentially with their mindset or the approach to training that you, you've yeah. noticed? Um, I think with high performance athletes, they are that they have they, they're very clear about their purpose. You know, like sometimes yeah. they they will do a training session whether they like it or not. You know, it's it's because if it meets them matches the goals of which they do or where they want to achieve, they'll be prepared to do anything. Now I know when yeah. I was running for the marathon and I had that 20, 20 odd mile that I needed to get done before the day, and I'm thinking, oh, getting out there on a cold winter day, it's <laughs> you you sort of can talk yourself out of it. So I think high performance athletes have very clear purpose to what they are doing, why they are doing it. And they're prepared to do anything to um, achieve their goals. So that, that's mm. the high performance ones. You have elite athletes sitting underneath that that don't actually understand that yet. So they don't mm. understand of the commitment and their purpose. And that's where coaching structures can actually guide them. Um, like having a really clear set goals and when you're going to achieve them. And if you don't achieve them, being able to reset them and being covering all the bases. I mean, it, it, the data that we hold for Katrina um on all aspects of nutrition psychology and all of that it's a massive data pool that gives her a lot of confidence that she can read back over that and understand where she's going recreational runners sometimes don't even write down the distances that they've done i know strava is a is a wonderful resource now that can basically collect all that data for them so maybe the recreational runners are moving a little bit closer towards high performance in the way that they go about you know maybe taking mm -hmm. a heart rate monitor and and having those and, yeah and i and i know a lot of um a lot of people in the industry now are writing ma uh, marathon training programs or 10K training programs for recreational effort, and they actually offer that service. So I think there is a little bit of a narrowing gap between um, between the recreational runners and the elite, but the elite will do the strength training. They will do the mobility. They would The time spent making their body the best way and the investment in it is greater. And, mm. and I think... They have talent that's identified, so they get resources placed into them. Recreational runners can become elite runners if that is their goal. But it, the journey to do that is it's about hard work. I mean, talent, talent's one of those. I love the comment. I could I could spend hours talking about uh, where, yeah. <laughs> where is it talent or is it hard work? Mm. Um, and where does that come in? I mean, I know I still have this whole quandary of that most athletes that I come to from all the different sports, if you look to their parents, the parents put them into a sport or the children followed the sport that their parents played. So how do we know that, you know, I've never skied before in my life, but how do we know I'm not the, the world's greatest downhill skier? I mean, well, that's it. I've, ne I've never done it, know. but it could be. <laughs> I, think, I think I've got the potential. So where talent comes from, I think, is exposure to environments. So that would mean that most of it has an, an, an aptitude to being trained. And it just depends mm. on where you start. So I think, you know, every recreational runner could be a high performance athlete. They just need right. to exposure to the, the methods. And, and if the exposure isn't great enough, then you might lose the, because the, there's so much that you can do. The early you do it, the better. But I also think early specialization is destroying an awful lot of athletic capability and ability in athletes mm. because there are too many young children getting adult-based injuries that may have been created by coaching philosophies that are trying to make 
uh, athletes specialized earlier in their sport when actually we we sort of do understand that we do need to keep an athletic rounded ability even if you're just going to run in a straight line you still need to be able to move left and right so if you're doing only specific movements as a young child and you don't do the other movements i think you have a detriment in your skill um, ability as you grow as an athlete that may eventually hold you back from reaching the very top mm. well, that's wow a that's a big statement <laughs> but there you go yeah that's, that's yeah, what I, well. I i i personally really do believe that yeah so what advice then would you give to a younger athlete in like someone who's just sort of starting out whether the, so i guess uh, um someone who is younger like yep i don't know maybe in their teen years and they're wanting to be a runner um, as well as advice to a less experienced athlete as well someone who might be how uh, not 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 youth but you know they're starting their running journey um, as well I just sort of like two separate categories yeah look if you got to the young athlete um, I would say that if you've been identified that you are if, 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 if athletics is your thing don't be afraid to play netball. Don't be afraid to play other sports. You know, like very few athletics may want to do the actual physical contact of say like an AFL, but AFL is like a really good sport for hand-eye coordination, change of direction, running, there's long distance, there's sprints and stuff. So it's very rounded, but unfortunately there are injuries that occur with that. So that may not be everyone's cup of tea, but I think, you know, if we're talking about plyometrics, go play a game of basketball because I'm sure you do lots of jumping in that. And I'm sure you do lots of landing and, and all those aspects. So sometimes can get some of these high performance elite based methods of training and actually get it just by having a game of basketball and mm. it's a much lower intensity. So I think yeah. I would, wouldn't want many of my athletes from a younger age to do um, early specialization until they've gone through their growth. So for women, it's a little bit earlier. So around about 16 is, an, is a sort of 15 to 16 is a good time for them to start specializing and really taking their sport seriously. For men, mm-hmm. it's a little bit older. It's maybe towards 17 and 18 that they can, they can specialize. But again, I think we're, that's all dragged back to 16 and 15 and 14 uh, for them to specialize, which means you can spend time in your sport of choice, but still be aware of playing other sports at different times of the season. There's very few sports that go all year round. Running is probably one of those that could be that, but maybe in your off season, you could do some variation training. I know um, a lot of middle distance runners do sprint training. So how does that Mm. fit into making them better athletes? So opportunities to do sports where you're not just going on the grind of just doing long distance and doing sprinting is really um, Mm. beneficial. So I would suggest if I had my, my gold choice, my gold choice would be for a young child to do a martial arts, gymnastics, and then another sport of their choice. Okay. Wow. Gymnastics for athletic ability, martial arts for control and discipline, and again, athletic qualities, and then the sport of their choice. Um, right. And a lot of, lot of parents will tick off swimming because of the living on an island and there's lots of beaches <laughs> and stuff. And I, and I totally get that. There are some athletic um, transfers that you can get, but I don't think there's many swimming transfers to running. It tends to be um, because the the nature of the body being supported and the structures of the forces yeah. created, it's it, very they different. are very very different. Um, so yeah, so I would I would encourage to keep playing lots of different sports. Have a passion for one, one hundred percent, but don't just spend 
all of your available recreational time as a young athlete in one sport. It's it's part of that mental as well, like about um, allowing your head to not just be focused on one thing. Like, is there a fear of burnout if you start too young? Is that part of it or more injury prevention? The, the, The statistics tell us that there is a massive dropout in sport Uh, when you get to the uh, maturation age so you know the dropout from female sport in around 16 to 18 is huge and why is that do 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 we burn athletes out with their enjoyment and their fun the the more the more time you spend in one sport the more serious it gets so if you know i know an awful lot of high performance athletes that love to just go and kick a footy around because it's fun it's not structured well if we're thinking that we've got a uh, a young child with a high performance mentality and they don't have any fun then that's quite challenging for them um mm. so i so i i do fear it is around the the broad base of skills that you learn from running jumping lunging squatting rotating catching moving left moving right uh forward rolls and all of those sort of stuff i think those are really fundamental important things when your skill set is broad when you come to funnel it in in a pyramid, it's easier to get the high performance at the end. If your bottom part of your pyramid is narrow because you haven't had the extensive skills, I think it limits the height of which your pyramid can go to. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. That's, that's awesome. Do you, do you have then just, I guess, a final bit of advice if you could for, I guess, a runner who has been running for a little while, but they're just wanting to be their best. I know we've talked about some specific exercises and, um, you know, training volume monitoring and body checks and things like that. But is there like a summary sort of golden tip or golden few tips that you would wish that all runners knew or some big misconception that you think people don't, just don't quite understand? That you could give um, the big myth out there is that um conditioning or strength exercises won't make you a better runner they will make you mm. a better runner so That's awesome. um, yeah if if you're out there and you you think go to a personal trainer you don't have to go to a strength conditioning coach you can just go to someone who knows exercises um the key exercise i would be able to do is i think that there's real value in that if your calf is strong enough to be able to do high loads volumes of say running from a a 20k upwards you need to be able to do 15 body weight calf raises on a single leg you need to be able to do 30 repetitions on double leg and i've just made a note here of what i'm i'm looking for is that the movement looks fluid not stiff and what you're talking about is if you're going to do a single leg calf raise your foot will be on a step and your your calf will go below the height of the step and lift up that the range of motion that from the top and the bottom stays consistent for 15 reps If you go and do this right now, I guarantee your calf will start feeling like there's a a flame going off in the middle of your calf. (laughs) I think that is a really good indication that your calf is is able to um, substantiate strength. So that's a really good indication. If you can't do it now, that's one of your exercises that goes into your program. The plank exercise would be uh, a really good or a paloff press, but don't just hold it and brace. So one of the exercises that I love to do is hold a plank you then have maybe a tennis ball or a disc, and then you reach with one arm and you place it onto the opposite side. You then put your arm back down, restabilize, pick up the one. So as you move your arms, you're moving your arms from side to side. So you're actually bracing on what we call a three point. So it will be your elbow and your two feet, and then you reach with the other arm. 
that creates an, yeah. a, a rotational force. Um, so that's a really good exercise. And then you then do the same for your legs. And, and then the other one would be just be some hamstring work. So um, if I was looking at trying to do some exercises at home, it would be putting my feet up onto a chair and holding a slight bend in the knee. And it's called an isometric hold. So then basically you hold it double leg and then you just lift one leg up for three seconds and then drop it down. All the load will go onto the one leg that's onto the, onto the chair. And that's called an isometric hold. It, it basically creates uh, perturbations in the pelvis that you have to control. Um, it's all about control and movement. If you put those three exercises into your runner's program, I guarantee that in about three to four weeks, you're looking at about eight to 10 reps, maybe two sets. I reckon in about four to six weeks, you'll start feeling a little bit stronger for the activity that you're doing. Um, and, and I think that will make you a better athlete. What comes after that is a little bit more um, technical stuff that goes in and, and <laughs> yeah. definitely use a professional to be able to help you with that. But that would be a really good starting point if you're currently not doing any strength work. That's awesome. I think that's perfect, perfect session right there. Thanks for sharing that with us, Tony. Awesome. Um, I think we could probably talk all day to you, but <laughs> we'll have to let you go. Thank you so much for coming on. I think really our good. listeners will get an incredible amount of value out of that and I know myself as well it's just yeah incredible to hear you speak gosh we'd yeah. love you to come on again part two Lo love to <laughs> I mean a, a good opportunity might be um after the Olympics and stuff like that after mm. a couple of athletes who performed and just seeing how how they all went and but I'd love to check in oh. again it's been really fun um I love being able to share and I think if if what we try to do is just to help anybody get become the better version of themselves that's 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 why I do my job that's my purpose just to help people become the best version of themselves that's awesome thank you so much really appreciate your time <laughs>